Welcome to the Star Wars Film Festival, where the lore hounds your guides to a galaxy far, far away. I'm David. I'm John, and this is our continuing coverage of the 2016 film Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, this time featuring an interview with Lieutenant Colonel Retired Matthew L. Cavanaugh, Ph.D., so we've been covering all of the Star Wars movies in story order. The next up is going to be A New Hope. But we have this little segue here to talk with uh, Matt about the military and its relationship. Well, I guess I don't know, John, how do we want to explain this? The fact that, you know, the Star Wars world is dominated by military stuff. So we thought we'd actually talk to a real military historian teacher. Yeah, it was a really cool interview. We we pre-recorded the interview and we're now in the future recording this <laughs> intro. Right. Uh, and I had a really great time. I learned a lot about sort of the intersection between Star Wars military culture and the real world military culture. And we talked a lot about the cost of war. We talked a lot about, you know, the way that you get together a coalition like the rebels versus a coalition that. I wouldn't even call it a coalition, you know, a, a banality of evil bureaucracy like the Empire. Really, really fascinating topics. I, I think hopefully he'll be a recurring guest because he is a very smart guy. Yeah, he's written two books. He or led the process, um, was the lead author, I should say, for a book called uh, Strategy Strikes Back, How Star Wars Explains Modern Military Conflict. And then a second follow-up book, Winning Westeros, How Game of Thrones Explains Modern Military Conflict. I heard Matt on the Electric Bukaloo podcast with Anthony. If you have not heard that uh, podcast, it's a great interview. Matt talks about the same sort of stuff, but in the Westerosian world. So it was, a, it was really amazing. Um, since we're carrying on with the Star Wars uh, Film Festival, and we've got Bad Batch coming up as well by the time we uh, get this out on the air. If you have any Star Wars related feedback to send us, you can send it to Wars at thelorehounds.com or you can visit us at our website and use the contact form or the voicemail feature there. We've also got a Discord so you can join us uh, in conversation there. All those links are in the show notes. Don't forget, as always, stick around to the end of the podcast for programming notes about all the other podcasts we have coming and for a reminder about our Patreon, where you can get everything ad free, early bonus stuff. You got everything. Uh, and David's the true detective detective notebook <laughs> is one of those things. We got to always plug that. Yeah. So anyway, David, I cool. think uh, we should we should get to the conversation because let's not keep the people waiting for greatness. Absolutely. Matt, thanks for joining us. Uh, really excited to have you on. I heard you on Anthony's podcast, and uh, I was just really taken with the conversation that you and he had. The insights were fascinating, and it just brought a whole new understanding to the the world. And I thought, oh, well, if he's done some Star Wars stuff, we've got to have him over on our podcast right away to talk about it. Because the Star Wars universe is dominated by military culture, military thought, action, you know, all these kinds of things. And so I was just really excited that you uh, agreed to hop on. So yeah, um, thanks for being here. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited. I, I just retired from 25 years in the army. Wow. Congratulations. And, um, thank you so much. And uh, it's good to be out, but also it's good to, um, you know, to be able to sort of translate uh, mm -hmm. How it is that those of us with short haircuts 
uh, <laughs> think about the world. Um, I was going to say you your, know, your, your facial hair is non-regulation, yeah, I think. <laughs> yeah. Not even close. You know, it's funny. No. I, uh, uh, I joined the army when I was 18 years old. Um, and so I quite literally had never had a beard in, in my, wow. in my whole life. And this is the first time, uh, and, and frankly, it's awesome in the sense that, you know, scraping sharp metal on your face every day, not yeah. always the best yeah. thing probably. So yeah. I'm, I'm really, really happy to, to be wearing a little face, face hair. So yeah. <laughs> welcome to the club. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, you were just saying uh, Rogue One, you were, your interest, cause we're going to use Rogue okay. One as our entry point into yep. this idea that the Star Wars universe is dominated by military themes, concepts, yeah. what our characters are motivated by, how they respond to things, why they're even doing a whole bunch of this stuff. Um, and, and whether you're rebellion or empire or, you know, some other faction conflict and, uh, warfare are central to the star Wars property. So you were just saying that star Wars, uh, rogue one was a, a, a film of particular interest for you. Yeah. Um, let's start with, you know, two thing, uh, it's important to keep two thoughts in mind at once, right? Yes. Yeah. This is a Hollywood movie. It's meant to put butts in seats it's a space opera, um, it's entertainment. But at the same time, of all the Star Wars films, um, this is the one where we see the, the, the idea that underpins all war throughout time, which is okay. that we, we trade human lives, we trade people and their mm -hmm. lives to advance a particular cause. Right. And, and, you mm -hmm. know, and at, the, at the very base of that, you're asking this, this all important question, what is the value of the object that we seek? And in turn, what's the price that we're willing to pay to achieve it? And, you know, like in the wow. film and in, 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 in several of the films, you know, what wouldn't you sacrifice to destroy a death star? Something that can, uh, that's a planet killer that snuffs right. out lives, uh, millions and millions of lives instantly. So, um, I, you know, I, uh, and, you know, I should probably back up just a tiny bit. I mentioned I retired after 25 years in the army, but where I really came to this idea that you could use Star Wars as a bridge to talk about uh, bigger issues in, in military strategy and national security was a basic one. Um, I was teaching at West Point and I was in my mid to late thirties, uh, standing in front of rooms of 18, 19, 21 year old kids and just that time gap, right? Like right, my joke, right. my jokes don't land. They don't, <laughs> they don't even, they don't even, like I fought in the Iraq war. They don't know anything about that conflict because they were like, you know, still in diapers, that sort of thing. Right. Um, and you know, what I realized is how important it is as, uh, as a, a military professor, you know, teaching, teaching at West Point uh, right. to be able to have a common framework uh, for people to connect across. And it, it doesn't just work uh, for cadets in a classroom. It works uh, when I left that assignment, I did a, an assignment in Korea. Mm -hmm. And while Korean military officers don't know a whole lot about the American Civil War, they've all seen all of the Star Wars films. Okay. And, you know, civilians. Uh, when, when I'm trying right. to communicate with uh, civilians who, who do have a part to play in modern war, Sure. In the sense that you are voting for national elected leaders, uh, you are paying taxes. Um, yeah, you're funding so, the war machine. Yeah, exactly, exactly right. And so I, 
I feel like it's really important to be able to stand on that common ground uh, with with anybody. And Star Wars is as good as it gets because just you know, even people that uh, don't know anything uh, know who Yoda is, right? Like, right. I mean, at the very base, it's it's almost like it's it's one of the last pop culture uh, platforms that really has touched everybody. Yeah, it spans across multiple generations. The choigenic nature of it, the you can we have friends who have kids, or or even our daughter, never seen a, a episode of Star Wars, never seen a glimpse of Star Wars, but knows Baby Yoda, knows yep. all this stuff about it, and yeah. it's just it's just there. It transcends, and I think that's something that John and I have discovered while doing this podcasting thing, which we sort of stumbled into, that the world of fiction can the 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 transition zone between fiction and real life and when you step over into the secondary world and you look back at the real world you can learn so much about our real world that you can't see when you're standing in the real world yeah, it illuminates absolutely. our our perspective in in ways that are profound and and moving at times and and, and really um can motivate action or make us feel something or make us connect to something. And so I think that is when I heard you and Anthony talking about um, the Westeros universe, I was like, that was a complete light bulb moment for me. It was like, yes, here is even a more practical explanation, you know, connectivity yeah. to real world issues. This guy is talking about, we, we, we definitely have to talk to him and I'll just plug really quick. You've got two books that you were lead yeah. author on. Yeah. Um, winning Westeros, how the game of Thrones explains modern military conflict and strategy strikes back how star Wars explains modern military conflict. And you've got a number of authors and, uh, you, you wrote, it looks like you wrote star Wars first and then Westeros. Yeah. And then those yeah. are available at, at popular booksellers. I found them on the, the big river sites and, yeah. you know, all that kind of stuff. So, John, I feel like I'm going to dominate the conversation. So maybe That's you should right. jump in with a question here. Yeah. You know, I, I think, first of all, you uh, you brought up a really cool thing, which is, you know, speculative fiction, I think in particular, yeah, is something where we are able to let go of some of the emotional baggage of things that we know about the real world and see things from different perspectives without having to confront ourselves being, I guess, wrong in our ideology right away. Do you find that that is, you know, part of your part of your use of Star Wars and Westeros in in examining military conflict? So the best encapsulation and I don't, I can't remember the writer, but when he was talking about the value of uh, science fiction and 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 fiction more broadly in in national security, it's it's that fiction isn't an escape from reality, but it it animates reality. It breathes mm -hmm. life into, um, and and gives you an a, a, uh, the ability to enter into someone else's mind uh, in order to um, use the imagination as a training ground, so to speak. So one of our co-writers uh, from both of the the those book projects you mentioned, uh, David, uh, yeah. was Mac, Max Brooks, uh, who uh, okay. wrote World World War Z and. Right. Uh, I, I have to tell you, you know, in the years before the pandemic, um, that story, I mean, I get it. Uh, and, and what they did in the movie was quite dissimilar from, from what the book uh, actually might have looked like. But it gave you a sense for what a uh, truly devastating global pandemic might look like. And in turn, 
uh, what might sorts of things might you have to do differently in order to contest it in in the national security space. Um, you can sort of apply that in in every different direction. Um, you know, so I I I think fiction is that mental playground where you can entertain unthinkable thoughts and then contest those unthinkable thoughts. And, you know, um, I mean, the, the cool thing about in particular Rogue One is that you have all these little sidebars or footnotes or jumping off points from the storyline uh, that, that you can use to sort of uh, put an exclamation point on things in the real world. I think it's a perfect segue into the Rogue One story and to start to talk about the the wider Star Wars thing. I assume you've seen Andor as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. The television series. And I think what you led off with was this idea that what are you willing to sacrifice? And yeah. that and what are you willing to trade in terms of lives, material, you know, blood and treasure for your strategic uh, objective. And there's the trailer. I don't know how much you know about the production of Rogue One, but it went through a little bit of difficulties. They they brought in Tony Gilroy to do some directing on it or to you know clean it up a little bit because the original, they weren't happy with the original cut of it. And there's a trailer, the very first trailer, there's a whole bunch of voiceover with Forrest Whitaker's character, Saw Guerrera, right? Who is this, as we know, whacked out guerrilla leader, right? Yeah. Who's, who's yeah. really out there. Uh, and the trailer, the, the voiceover that he has is, you know, what will you do? What will you become? When basically, I'm paraphrasing here, but when you're pressed, when the enemy is pressing you, who are you going to become in the face of that violence and, you know, threat to to you and everything that you believe in? And, and I really like the way that you, you framed Rogue One in terms of this trade, right? What are we willing to trade versus what, you know, what our, where our gains are? Can you talk a little bit more about yeah. that in terms of strategic objectives and, and um, cost in blood and treasure? Uh, Guerrera is a really interesting figure because totally. I mean, first of all, like Guerrera is this close to the word Guerra. Yes, know, exactly. War. The Guerra and, war. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and, and in, in all the previous incarnations of, of the films, you know, you, you're portrayed as, uh, seeing the rebels as, uh, one monolith more or less, or everybody sees the world the same way. But the reality is, um, that war is for the highest stakes. And so even though, uh, even those that are on the same side, so to speak, uh, will have immense disagreements, um, about the pathway to some sort of, uh, victory or or accomplishment, um, and you know when when you're fighting against an, an organization that would kill an entire planet or an entire people or an entire city, I mean, human beings are kaleidoscopes, and and it would be impossible to predict how you would react. Uh, one of the uh, sort of uh, tools that I would employ in class. So I'm standing in front of a group of cadets at West Point and I would ask, you know, if someone walked into the classroom right now, like just this moment with a weapon, with a gun, whatever it might be, a hand grenade, uh, how would you react? And I would have them scribble that down on a piece of paper. And then I would have, 
you know, I would ask for like a sampling of responses and these are cadets. So they're, they're type A and they're hero personality folks. So they're all, you know, they're all rushing the gunmen, that sort of thing, you know, and, and I asked them a serious question and I didn't want any of them to respond to this. It was a rhetorical question, but if it really, really happened, are you so certain that that is exactly how you would truly react to such a horrifying moment in your life? The reality is none of us knows exactly how we would react. And if, if we don't know our own response to violence in the heat of a moment, then how, how likely is it that even the rebellion in this fictional universe would, mm-hmm. would all sort of conform to the same line of thinking. It's just, it's just not going to happen. So that's why I really loved uh, this take on the rebellion. You know, you get to see- uh, We have that fractured council meeting, right? Yeah. Right there where they can't even decide on what their objective is. Yeah. And, you know, we keep hearing that Saw is an extremist. The challenge is though, like, and, and we see his his forces conduct an ambush, which, by the way, looks like an ambush right out of the Iraq War. Um, okay, but uh, but we we don't really get more than that, uh, you know. And you know, even extremists have a logic to them, and, and mm-hmm. I'll I'll hang some meat on that. Uh, what I mean by that is, um, a little over a decade ago. Uh, there was a moment where ISIS, if you remember ISIS, yep. mm-hmm. uh, burned a Jordanian pilot alive yep. in a cage. Yep. Now, uh, horrifying, disgusting, right. shocks the conscience. Um, of course, that's the point. But yeah, there's more to it than just the shock value. If you are an organization that has no air force, that has no planes your only ability to fight back against a modern air force is to strike fear into the heart and mind of the next pilot that gets into the next plane. And so I wish a little bit that they had given us a little bit more why they call Saw Guerrera an extremist. Right. Um, but at the same time, I, I under, you know, realistically speaking, it would be sort of, um, you know, um, uh, a reasonable reaction to, uh, you know, to to the to the empire that that kills whole planets in a single fight, you know, a single shot. Yeah, right. You know, it, it, being an extremist would probably be a reasonable reaction. I, I mean, I. Yeah. Some of the first looks of Rogue One before it went through rewrites and reshoots did show uh, Rebel X-wing pilots. Uh, under in custody being escorted by empire troops. And then that whole segment was dropped. We do see the the crashed X-Wing at, at one point, but I believe the Disney studio executives got a little cold feet because it's one thing mm. to shoot a green beam at a planet and whoop, by a billion of people. Yeah. It's another thing to see prisoners of war yes. in, in that, in that raw state. And, and f- so far our star Wars has been very clean. It hasn't as been uh, yeah. as gritty. And so even this was a, an extension of that. I think John uh, wanted to follow up on something. Yeah. I, I just wanted to talk about, you know, you brought it up yourself, but these different factions within the rebellion. And I think that's one of the most fascinating things about rogue one. And they bring this up in the, I don't know how deep you've gone into the animated stuff, but it becomes an issue in rebels and the clone wars and the bad batch. And, 
just this idea of we can't get all these people to talk to each other and come up with a common goal. And when you look at Star Wars as a full history, you look at this rebellion and how it becomes a new republic, and they have an incredibly hard time and an un- unsuccessful time, ultimately, creating a functional military and a yeah. functional government. Can you talk about sort of how one approaches these diversities of opinion and diversities of factions when trying to you know do the right thing, but we can't agree on it? Because this is a common theme in real life when we can't agree on the right answer. There's nothing harder. I mean, it, it take getting along with your in-laws and multiply at times <laughs> a, a billion, I, like it, uh, fighting in alliance Fighting in an alliance is incredibly difficult. There's that old saw, pun intended, about you know Churchill saying, um, you know, the only thing harder than fighting in an alliance is is not having any allies. Something to that effect. Um, I always fall back on that the 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 question that I posed at the very beginning: What is the value of the object that you seek, and in turn, what is the price that you're willing to pay to achieve it? And if the value of the object is high enough, there's nearly nothing you won't do. And, you know, the, the Second World War, the United States allied itself with, with Uncle Joe Stalin. You know, we, we made peace with Stalin, um, who uh, starved the Ukrainians, you know, a decade before the war, uh, conducted purges of the top ranks of his general uh, officers and his senior military command. I mean, he was he was not a wonderful guy. But when you're fighting the Nazis, uh, you are holding you are necessarily getting into bed with and holding hands with um, any you know pretty much anyone that you could. Um, so I understand that. I mean, I, I I take that point and I I expand the idea um, into the modern world, but also into the fictional universe. Um, you know. We don't really get to see it. You know, there's never a point because there's obviously uh, in in Rogue One, uh, there's uh, animosity between uh, the rebellion and Saw Gerrera's uh, forces such that, you know, they're basically looking to kill him. Um, but there is a moment where aided, of course, by a, by a human relationship, Saw Gerrera is willing to help transfer the information of the Death Star to an organization that he's more or less openly at odds with hostile to, right? You know, if you deem a planet killer such a threat, who, you know, who wouldn't you pair with at that point? If, you know, the enemy of the, of my enemy is, is my friend. Right. All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we'll return to our interview with Matt. And we're back. I want to um, ask about the guerrilla style tactics that the rebels used, at least on the ground. I think the the Battle of Scarif, both from the space battle to the ground battle, is one of the the best action sequences in in mo- modern cinema. It's certainly when the Star Wars universe. It was really compelling. It was really well edited and stuff. 
but this idea that they're just falling forward. I mean, there's the old joke about no good plan survives contact with the enemy, yep. right? You know, the moment things go to part. And I really like the way that Jin Erso is like, we're just going to keep falling forward. You know, we're going to take the next chance and the next chance after that and, and keep hoping. Um, what is what is your sense having, you know, led, have, having been in battle and been uh, within that culture, how did that whole ground fight on Scarif strike you? It looked just like the ambush scene in Jeddah City okay. was straight out of the Iraq war. I mean, it, mm -hmm. um, on some level, there are some things that are immaterial as to time. Mm -hmm. um, cover and concealment right. matters. And right. surprise. The, you know, the, absolutely. The, the yeah. Earth's surface is naturally a complex structure and other planets are also uh, <laughs> naturally complex and you can utilize that as a protective shield and you can use it to fire and maneuver. Um, you know, it was, it was, it truly was uh, at, at the uh, onset of the first world war mm -hmm. firepower completely overwhelmed protection. You know, if you can think right. of all warfare as a, a race between uh, guns and armor. Mm -hmm. And in the first world war, you know, there, there was this moment where the guns, the, the munitions, uh, the firepower so overwhelmed the ability of a defender to defend themselves. You know, you could think back to, uh, think of, uh, two guys fighting, uh, one sword, one shield each, right? Mm -hmm. That's basically equal more or mm -hmm. less. Right. Um, when we get to the first world war, that's done with, and so you have to find an ability to use the natural terrain to your advantage and, um, you know, find a way to move through that advanced firepower. And when I'm watching those scenes in Rogue One, it's the same thing. Mm. I mean, it's, it's you know, it, like there's there's a colorful laser blast. Right. But right. Even, in, even in modern war, there's uh, tracer fire. Mm -hmm. that is meant to be used to aim into onto your target. Right. And so we really are watching something that's, you know, ripped from the ripped from the headlines almost in in that regard and I thought that was um pretty amazing. You know, and you you mentioned falling forward and um you know, all warfare on some level is a string of miracles propelled by individual moments of sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And so we see that um you know, it's uh it, it, it's it's true on screen mm -hmm. and it's it's true in the real world and you know i would even uh there's so much that sort of ca you know cascades out of that um there's a reason why every war movie you've ever seen features a squad that's like a collection of of oddballs from different locations because if you went into the united states army tomorrow you would see that it is truly represented and populated by uh, the peoples of the entirety of America. Mm -hmm. um, West Point itself actually divvies up slots at the academy proportionally based on members of Congress around the country. So, right. uh, you know, the the, uh, the the if you're more likely to to bump into a kid from California than an Alaskan. Sure. Because those spots are divvied up by the proportion of the United States. Um, and in this film, we're seeing the same thing. These are a collection of oddballs from sort of, mm -hmm. you know, representing different uh, 
constituencies and people, and they've all come together for some common purpose. So I, I love that about this film. Right. Right. John. Yeah. And that kind of goes into something else I wanted to ask you about, which is the difference in approach between Rogue One and I think most of the rest of Star Wars, especially the episodic stuff, between a focus on, you know, quote unquote heroes, a focus on people who make it into the history books and a focus on boots on the ground. And for for you, you know, does Rogue One ring truer for that? Yeah, I mean, this is sort of the, um, you know, in historical circus circles, they refer to this as uh, uh, the great man theory of history. The right, idea right. that we talk about that, that a it, bunch. Yeah, Thomas Carlyle. You have these um, Titanic figures, um, but but even someone like so. I did my my uh, political science dissertation at uh, on key moments in major uh, major American conflicts, and you know. Uh, General Dwight David Eisenhower is an amazing figure, uh, if for no other reason than he he never lost sight of of perspective. Uh, one of the, uh, you know, he, he had a reporter ask him how, asking him sort of flowery questions about uh, D, the D Day landings and and how uh, great his contribution was to the Allied war effort. And, you know, he immediately pivoted the question towards the importance of what was called the Higgins boats, the yeah. flat bottomed boats that were used in, down in the bayou and in Louisiana, uh, swamp boats, in essence, uh, that they had to bring over to uh, the United Kingdom in order to make the landings. And so he focused on, on some level, the most prosaic, mundane piece of gear and how if we didn't have those boats, we wouldn't win. Or um, there's that iconic image of Eisenhower uh, having a conversation with a paratrooper uh, the day before the landing. It's a guy that's got his face all camoed up. He's wearing a number 23. Um, and it was a kid. He was a second lieutenant from Michigan uh, who wasn't receiving any sort of last minute wisdom from the commanding general. He just found out this kid that that hat that day happened to be his 22nd birthday. Uh-huh. Um, and so, you know, when you have uh, someone like Eisenhower who focuses so much of his energy on all those little individual constituent parts, because that's what warfare is. It's a, um, it's a symphony and while it's important to have a conductor, it's equally important that every individual member is playing in tune. And so I really, I loved that about this film too, um, you know, because obviously when we're talking about Star Wars, so much focus is on uh, the Jedi and this, these sort of uh, magical knights Space um, wizards the, with laser swords. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. But the reality is, um, you know, uh, when you, when you take a step back, uh, just as the death star isn't the ultimate weapon, uh, neither are the Jedi. Uh, right. you, there is no such, you know, that's the thing. Uh, there is no such thing as ultimate an ultimate weapon when it comes to war. Uh, the Pope, I think it was Pope Innocent II in the 11th or the 12th century banned crossbows, uh, because they were uh, deemed too 
uh, dangerous and destabilizing. Um, but the reality is, uh, war is just this constant one-upsman, one-upmanship, and it just hap- it, it it will go on throughout time forever. Uh, right. And it it the same thing happens on screen. Let's um, widen our our lens out a little bit and think about the empire as a organization itself, yeah. which is trying to bring peace and stability to the galaxy, but doing it in this very heavy-handed. Yeah, authoritarian way, and we get to see a lot of the inner workings, at least of the ISB and in, in the Andor, yeah, uh, television show following Dedra Miro and how she interfaces with, you know, the the planetary governor and how he's ordering his troops around, sort of deploying his forces there. But this idea, uh, or then on the Aldani thing, anyway, we could go on from there. Um, the idea of this empire, though, which is such a massive, yeah. massive organization. And their strategies for control and, and tactics. What do you what do you read into how the, the the creators behind the Star Wars universe have constructed this fictional empire? Yeah, the the bureaucracy of evil. You know, there's right, the, exactly. the banality of evil and right. the bureaucracy of evil. Right. So, um, boy, where to begin? Um, there's there's logic there. I mean, mm-hmm. again, there's it makes perfect sense. Uh, one of the writers in our in our anthology. Uh, pointed out, uh, you know, the sort of uh, the Tarkin doctrine, you know, the idea <laughs> that um, mm-hmm. y- if you hit hard enough, swift enough, you can cow the entirety of the universe into submission and order and stability. And on some level at, at sort of a, um, at a remove, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but <sighs> Uh, you know, there are so many chinks in the, in the, in the empire's armor. So uh, the rebels uh, have almost this unlimited mobility and movement. They have no, you know, it's easy for them to sort of pick up the organization's mass and move it elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And so on some level, I kind of understand the empire's uh, desire uh, to find uh, an, an an annihilation stroke, you know, because it almost seems as if if there's only one rebel left, they can reconstitute the whole thing, they can rebuild the whole tree, they can use one seed to plant uh, the tree, and you know, at one point we actually do get down to one Jedi, <laughs> you know, right. so it, you know, it, it, you know, like you can actually see that played out on screen. That exposes um, Karl von Clausewitz. Um, who was uh, an early ni- late 18th and early 19th century uh, philosopher of war. Um, his description of a theoretical idealized war. And Clausewitz was such an interesting figure in the sense that um, he f- was first on the battlefield at age 12 um, and fought through all of his even pre-adolescent life through his adult life and much of that was spent losing to Napoleon, which forced this <laughs> sense of, of, um, uh, I mean, he, he ultimately didn't die on the battlefield, by the way, he, he died of cholera. Um, right. but, but he, he, you know, reflected on what the difference was between a winning side and a losing side. And he theorized this idea, um, idealized war which is, you, you can kind of shorthand it like this. It's the, you know, the, the single haymaker theory of warfare. 
you build one giant weapon that takes all of your energies or kyber crystals, you <laughs> blow up all of your adversaries in one immense blast and all is perfect and achieved and wonderful with the world. Um, but of course, so, so he used that as a foil, you know, um, uh, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Um, in the real world, the antithesis is we have constant frictions tugging at us. You know, all three of us on this call have children. We know what that is. Um, you know, we, we can never achieve some idealized state of life. And the same thing is true of warfare. Um, even, uh, you know, in, in our, in the real world, it's a nuclear weapon, right? Um, you know, Vladimir Putin in his dreams may want to create some super mega weapon that instantly kills all his opposition on the battlefield in Ukraine, for example, ain't going to happen. You know, uh, someone is going to defect and tell the Ukrainians about the super weapon the super weapon won't fire as intended. You name it. You can add all. You 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 can pick it apart. Uh, death by a thousand pinpricks. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, um, you we see that. You know, we see that on screen uh, mm -hmm. in the film. Um, while the empire wants this super weapon that cows all opposition into submission. It, it, it doesn't even happen in the fictitious world because it doesn't jive with reality. Like, right. you know, it, ha it has to be tethered to reality in some way. There's a great um, so scene in the, in TV, in the Andor where Luthen is asking Cassian, how, how did you, how do you get in? And he's like, they're so arrogant that they can't even believe a guy like me would just walk in. I yeah. just have to look the part. And because their mind is so drawn out to these bigger things that, like you said, the defector, the the parts manufacturer, the supply chain, the break in the supply chain are all going to lead inevitably to some sort of um, things not working the way you envisioned them. Yeah. So for for the for the uh, uh, the empire, annihilation is sort of preferred, and 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 attritional warfare is difficult for them because you know not everybody wants to sign up. Whereas the on the flip side. Uh, the rebellion seems as though attrition is more possible. And what I mean by that is um, you can see that them able to win over converts and defectors. And of course we get that in, in our pilot, um, you know, that defects uh, and, and we get that in, in uh, uh, Galen Urso. Right. Uh, we, you know, we, we get these, we get these defectors, um, and so that actually seems achievable or, or an, an, an objective for, uh, the rebellion in this particular case. I'm sorry. I stepped on John, I think. No, no, no worries. Uh, it's great context to add, you know, I, I wanted to, you know, bring in the way that the empire sort of treats the people working for it. You know, these people who give their whole life to the empire, you know, you can put to the obvious Gail and Urso, you know, they killed his wife in front of him and tried to kill his daughter. And that clearly radicalized him with, from within. But you also have Krennic and Krennic being refused credit for, for his work on the Death Star, causing his sloppiness, which left an opening for the rebels. And so 
it's interesting to contrast that with Cassian Andor shooting someone who he thought would get him caught at the beginning of the movie, right? Is both of these sides are treating people as disposable in some way. Yeah. But Cassian is doing it for the cause of the rebellion so that, you know, plans aren't taken so that nobody finds out that they know about the Death Star weakness uh, or rather that nobody knows about the pilot. Um, and then the Empire is doing it for Tarkin's ego, right? And for yeah. Krennic's ego. So, yeah, it's it's super interesting to contrast that. I mean, if you want to win converts and, and on some level, that is. Uh, um, it, 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 look, Sun, Sun Tzu is the most quoted text on strategy in the world because it's basically sort of the buy low, help, sell high uh, advice, um, uh, you know, uh, to, to be doled out for winning on the battlefield. But, um, you know, he, you know, Sun Tzu, which was probably a compilation of many writers, but points out that the acme of skill, the, the best you could imagine is is to simply for your opponents to dissolve and then join your forces. And if you are uh, cruelly and wantonly disregarding or disposing of either members of your side or the opponent's side, you know, you're not going to win a lot of converts. Um, the other thing that I would add to that, though, is, um, you know, warfare is the part of social activity where human beings are truly disposable. And that is an ugly idea, but it is, it is true when it comes to modern war. I mean, that's, um, you know, that on some level, that's the point. So I served, uh, for a year in, in South Korea and, uh, North of Seoul, basically on the DMZ. And, you know, cynics have pointed out that the mil the American military presence in South Korea is basically a human tripwire. And by that, what I mean is the North Koreans would would be less inclined to fire upon South Korea because doing so would mean killing Americans and drawing the Americans into the war. So on some level, I'm just sort of a, a you know a, a part of a human shield uh, in my service in South Korea, and I you know is that what I like. Is that the good night story that I tell my kids, <laughs> you know, before I go there? No, um, but when I get down to it, that is one of the the functions that I served um, while I was while I was in Korea. So yeah, I was thinking of when the Empire sacrifices the facility on Scarif, mm -hmm. that they're willing whatever yes. whatever yes. Tarkin's big picture that he has, he's like we can lose this base that is we can destroy it ourselves to 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 cauterize you know yeah. whatever's going on here and to me that's just un you know unbelievable i just cannot understand the level of that decision making because yeah. granted there's probably some other backup locations that have all of these plans and all these kinds of things but you're intentionally harming your own ability by taking this facility out, but yet that is the willing, you know, that he's willing to go there. He's willing yeah. to, to do that. That, that is just phenomenal to me. It's, it's hard to watch. And it's actually, there's echoes of that decision in a more, I would say 
ethical light. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, 10 years ago, uh, the Israeli Defense Force had a second lieutenant. I think his name was Second Lieutenant Goldine, mm-hmm. um, who was taken uh, taken prisoner uh, by Hamas into the tunnels, and they actually this had is developed- pre the current. This is a oh yeah, this is a, this is a decade ago. Okay. And I remember just like my jaw dropping, even as a military person, that the Israeli Defense Force had developed what they call the the Samson Doctrine, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. Um, if one of their military members these these are these are people in uniform these are not civilians right uh, if one of their military members is taken uh, and and believed to be alive uh, by an adversary like Hamas, the battle drill response was to call artillery fire on the last known location on the theory that it is better, for that soldier to perish, then A, be taken hostage, and then B, have to, for the government, the Israeli Defense Force to have to go and put more lives at risk to get that soldier back. Right. Um, and and if you, I, I think if you look it up, I think they eventually did have to trade, I think it was a thousand, a thousand Palestinian prisoners mm-hmm. slash Hamas prisoners in order to get them back. Now, of course, I don't want to turn this conversation no, towards no, what's we, happening in Gaza right now, because right, yeah. you know, you know what I said before. Uh, fiction is uh, it's not an escape from reality, but it animates reality. In this moment, I want to I want to escape from reality because it's <laughs> right. awful all around. Yeah. But what yeah. I what I'm pointing out is um, that uh, in that same scenario that Krennic finds himself in, right? There are variants of it where I think it makes sense to actually fire upon people wearing the same uniform. Right. However, that's not one of them. You know, that's right. that's not you know that's that's uh, that's not one of them that exactly uh, uh, warms the heart. Well, and then I, I, I just think thinking about this even further, that's got to be counter motivational to your own people yep. to know like, wait a minute, we're going to get nuked by our own boss. Like, Correct. why would I want to wear this uniform anymore? So, so the, you, you'll find that so many of us, you know, I, I joined the army because it was a way for me to go to school at West Point. Mm-hmm. I wanted to play hockey, you know, and, um, I, I, it's not as if I was born on the 4th of July where I had, you know, I'm, I'm Lieutenant Dan where all of my family members (laughs) are in the military. Um, and what you'll find is by and large, if you went into an, an army, uh, uh, squad platoon or battalion right now, or, or in any of the other services, you know, you're not going to find like, you know, gung ho types. A lot of them are there because they're looking to pay, pay for college or uh, get a job, or it, it was my ticket to getting out of nowheresville. Um, however, what I will say is that over time, you do those values sort of permeate you. Um, but at no point does your belief in your cause ever overwhelm your awareness of your leadership's judicious decision-making in how to spend your life. 
and what I mean is like as at I as I pointed out at the beginning, you know, we're we're at we're trading human lives to advance some objective. That part I I I understood and I I saluted and I accepted. I just don't want to be spent for a shitty objective. You know, like <laughs> like I it better mean something. If my mm-hmm. kids have to just get a flag and that's all they get left to me, there had better been some really amazing reason for that to happen. Now, let's take it into Rogue One. You know, spending Cassie and Andor, spending uh, you know, he's a captain, right? He's a mm-hmm. ca- spending a captain, spending Jin Erso, spending uh, K2SO. Uh, that was worth it, right? Like that, you know, that achieving, uh, uh, seizing the plans for the Death Star, absolutely worth it. You know, so I, 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 uh, this is fiction, but right. it rings true. Right. Right. And I think it would have been a very different conversation had they, gone with their almost plan to have them survive at the end because you can see they're they're basically at peace at the end when they when they're waiting for the sunrise and whatnot and yeah yeah um i want to talk about luthan for a minute because i think luthan is one of the coolest characters introduced to star wars in a while luthan from andor who talks about sort of burning his soul for the sake of the rebellion and you know we've talked a lot about you know sacrificing human lives for a cause, but not a lot yet about sacrificing sort of who we are and sacrificing, you know, our quote unquote souls, whatever that means to you. Have you is this something that you sort of consider in your work? I mean, I think that that's the hardest part about all of this because, um, you know, the the military is granted. It, the military is a profession, you know, like I'll, I'll start there. Um, just as, uh, doctors, uh, and lawyers are, are members of a profession. Um, you know, the, the, the sick want to be healed. Uh, the accused want a just trial and, and a society requires a defense, you know, um, and I think, you know, right now at this very moment, there are a number of different societies in Ukraine and Israel and in Palestine, you know, in, in, uh, in the Gaza Strip that feel that need for a defense. Um, and so members of that profession have an obligation to take very seriously what things they are willing to do and what things they will not do in order to defend society. Um, it is, it, it, there's an old phrase, um, you know, the military's purpose is to kill people and break things. No, it's not. You know, killing people and breaking things is, first of all, it's not even a purpose. That's that's a task. That's a, a physical thing that you might do. Uh, the military's purpose is to defend some society, you know, my, my oath was, uh, to uphold the constitution and to, to protect and defend Americans and American soil, uh, and American interests. And, you know, one of the most constant themes that you have in, in the military profession is, um, someone's individual conscience versus what 
the society is asking that individual to do. Um, and it's it, there. It, there's no easy answers. It's always a give and play and a tug, right? Um, the world was treated to uh, Oppenheimer. Um, you know the the film about uh, Robert Oppen J. Robert Oppenheimer and his uh, development of the atomic weapon. You know, in some ways, the Death Star of the 1940s, um, and then his his anger and sadness and regret over what sort of awfulness they had on you know put upon the earth there's no way to get around it the the nuclear weapon use in japan killed instantly killed non-combatants women and children and old people civilians um you have to balance that though against the suffering that the Japanese empire was visiting upon the peoples of the Pacific. You know, uh, I, like <laughs> that, that also is uh, awful. And I know that, I mean, this is, someone's going to come back and record this phrase that I'm going to use and it'll come back to haunt me maybe someday, but sometimes two wrongs does get us to a right. And I, I th that uh, the use of the atomic weapon, the nuclear weapon, was ugly and abhorrent, but it did help to end one of the worst spells of humanity, you know, that humanity has ever uh, moved through. So I, I the, um, the apex of mechanized warfare was in the yeah. Pacific and in Europe was yeah, it was, and it was going to keep grinding on. So uh, I'm not, I'm not giving any. John, you ask, you pose a wonderful question. Um, the reason that my answer is meandering is because th there is no sort of simple, um, there's no simple clean answer. answer. Yeah, there's no clean answer. Um, you know, it's uh, it, it, the, these issues just will continue to to happen over and over and over again. And the one thing I will say, uh, the one thing that I I would like commit to is that as a member of the, the military profession, the obligation that we have is to uh, use all of the ethical reasoning that's built into our profession mm -hmm. and then lay bare those choices to, to the civilians that direct us and guide us. Um, because at the when you get down to it, the military's purpose, as I mentioned, is to protect and defend civilians but it is at the direction of the civilians. It is at the direction of the civilian leadership. Whereas in, in the empire, it's at the, the direction yeah. is the empire. It's, it's, the, a, other it's the other way around. Yeah. And yes. we're imposing peace and stability as yes. opposed to uh, forming a structural, a, socio, a sociological structure in which society can yes. have some have have tools at its disposal to protect itself or to do things because you can think of uniform service too not just uh, fighting arms but uniform service in in terms of natural disaster in terms of yeah. you know all, of all threat response right of all kinds of different things so Which are growing yeah. yeah exactly and so it's it's not just that and 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 I think you you put your finger on the the fact that war is tragic and unclean and it, it sullies everyone. We, we now start to talk about the moral harms that 
warfare has on individuals. Yeah. The 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 care the things that you carry home, and I think we see that with Cassian as a, as a rebel, as a captain in a rebellious army. He's saying, "I have done things that are you know just uh, unspeakable, and if I can't believe that I did something." That, that all these things that I did were not in service of a greater good, then I couldn't live with myself. Yes. And he ultimately yeah. pays a, he, the full price for that, right? Absolutely. Because he, and he, he dies I mean, on the beach there. You know, you're, you, you raised Luthan and, and, yeah. and Cassie and both of them. Um, so that's, that's sort of the pointy end of the spear, right? Mm. But, but the other thing that, that comes out in Rogue One is warfare's cost to society. Um, so the very first thing that we see in the film is a child running away from war. Um, and of course, part of that first opening sequence is uh, taking a scientist to mm. develop military technology. So Oppenheimer-like. <laughs> yeah, it's it, yeah. It, it, there's a joke that I heard that... Um, that in the Second World War, our German scientists, you know, uh, our German Jewish scientists beat mm -hmm. their German Jewish scientists, and you know, the the these are these are the scientists that fled Germany before the war, um, and of course after the war, uh, we uh, in in Operation Paperclip, we yes, uh, welcomed them into the United States, um, but even you know after that. Um, in the early 1950s, you get uh, first General Eisenhower, now President Eisenhower, giving what's called his chance for peace speech. Um, every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies in the final sense a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, who are cold and not clothed. Wow. You know, the, the world at, in arms is not spending money alone. It is spending the sweat of its laborers, the genius of its scientists. And I, I, I pull, pulled that off, lifted that, knowing we might bump into it because um, think of all the effort and um, uh, the, the bureaucracy of evil that we see, right? We, you mm. know, in, the, in completing the Death Star and in the Andor series, um, think of how you might uh, do a little jujitsu and redirect those to uh, humanitarian aims, right. you know, it's the old guns versus butter discussion. Right. And I, I, like when I'm watching that, um, even as a member of the military, right. I, I recognize that there is some irreducible minimum that we do need, you know, we need to put, uh, we need to put good weapons in the hands of young people that we ask to join the service. However, Every dollar that we spend that is unnecessary towards securing national defense is, of course, money that could be could be used to better ends. And I like so many of us, you know, wearing the uniform can see that. Well, that was a. a, a there's so many. I feel like <laughs> John and I have this joke that we're like, oh, we can get this podcast done in an hour. And I think yeah. we're going to try and actually hold ourselves on this account yeah. because you're here with us. But I, I feel like this could go on for quite a lo much longer, and we could we could span out into so many questions. I have a, a dozen unanswered sort of you know topics that we could dive into. But I think your your quote there about the the cost of warfare, the true cost of yeah. warfare to a society, is a is a good note to to end on. And I think that's the idea. I think that's one of the things that really makes Andor and Rogue One 
so enthralling. It's it's consistently people's favorites is because it is real in that sense that it it forces yeah. us to examine the costs. Like you said, you know, trading lives for objectives or what is the true cost of war or in the empire's calculation, what's the true cost of peace, an imposed peace as opposed to a organic peace, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I just, yeah, there's there's a lot there. So it's it's been great having a conversation with you. Just really quick, what are um, three different pieces of media that you're consuming right now? What are uh, shows, movies, books, anything you're listening to that you know folks might find interesting, uh, or that so you've I'm, recently watched, or whatever? Oh gosh, last night I watched the f- first episode of the Mr. and Mrs. Smith series. So good, isn't it? It, it? It 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 yeah. It's actually like it's it's not overblown. I I'm super yeah. impressed. Um, you know. Uh, Actually, uh, th- this one is uh, yeah, a podcast. Uh, the rest is history. It's it's two British historians walking okay. you through. Um, now I know that's not fiction. Um, no, just that, anything, just any pieces of yeah. media, any pieces of media. And, and then the third one is actually like no joke. You mentioned uh, uh, a sister podcast or a, uh, an adjacent podcast mm-hmm. uh, that I did not so long ago on Game of Thrones. And uh, I actually happened to be reading back through George R. R. Martin's uh, books, um, you know, just because, uh, you know, I, I needed an airplane book and they're sure. always fantastic. Um, and so I, I'm actually still working my way back through uh, Martin's uh, set. So, yeah, those three. Great. Okay. Well, Matt, thank you so much for spending some time with us. I hope we could have you back on again in the future. Anytime. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a lot that we could, we could talk about. John, any f- parting thoughts? Yeah, I just, I really appreciate that Eisenhower quote to, to end. I, you have me thinking now and I, I want to prepare myself for the next time we talk to you. <laughs> I think it'd be good to talk to you around, um, you know, when we, when we hit episode nine, where we talk mm. about the new Republic a little bit more, uh, because I'm thinking about how, you know, in the Ahsoka series, I don't know if you caught that yet, but. Uh, you know, when the when the new Republic Senate is just like, no, you're not taking all these resources and going to hunt for the threat we don't know is there. Uh, yeah. And and we you know, there is a balance, right? There's a balance between over cautiousness and overzealousness. Yeah. Yeah. So, Matt, we can uh, you can folks can find your books online, uh, yeah. you know, from a shop winning Westeros and strategy strikes back. Yep. Um, great. Thanks again for taking the time and we look forward to chatting with you again in the future. Thanks so much, guys. A lot of fun. So David, we're just going to do a quick outro here. I think this is, you know, this is kind of a bonus episode. So let's just talk quickly about what we're doing right now. Uh, we have, of course, two other affiliates on our network. We've got Will Shift Dust with Alicia, a little bit of a hiatus right now, but she'll be back. I know you're working on something with the Oscars with her, so stay tuned on that feed. Properly Howard Movie Review is also on a break, but we will be covering Severance with them later in the year. As for us, you can check out our weekly coverage of True Detective coming out just after the episode airs, thanks to screeners. Every single week, you can get the uh, the detective's notebook that David puts together. If you As are a, a Patreon patron. subscriber benefit, yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brandon and I are finally reconvening to do another Lorehounds play on Final Fantasy VII Remake. That's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, it's going to be ahead of the sequel to it, Final Fantasy VII Rebirth, because they want to confuse it with all these renames. Uh, that's coming out on Leap Day. 
David, you and I are going to keep going through the Star Wars universe with A New Hope later in February or perhaps early March. We're going to talk about timing with that, but definitely write in with questions and comments on Star Wars 1977, whatever you want to call it. Call right. it whatever you want. I know there's <laughs> there's a generational divide there. Uh, don't forget, we're bringing back Earthsea this month. We're going to be reading Dragonfly and Chapter One of The Other Wind with Marilyn Arpukila, our favorite Tolkien and Le Guin scholar. Silmarillion stories are back with Of Men, a chapter. It's just called Of Men. We're, we're, we're going for it. We're talking about all of those crazy guys in Middle Earth in the First Age. Finally, you and Brandon, David, are doing coverage of Masters of the Air. You did one already on the first two episodes, and you'll be doing a wrap-up at the end. I know you just mentioned to Matt that you might have him back on uh, for something at the end of the season. Yeah, that might be fun. I know we're going to have a special guest for our wrap up podcast, and then maybe we'll do another one of these uh, podcasts at the end where, um, you know, a whole separate standalone interview where we can talk a little bit about what we saw and, and contextualizing it a little bit more. That would be fun. Very cool. All right. One other note MC Universe is back this month with a preview of Madam Webb. Correct. And uh, yeah, we're, we're, Trying to figure out how our coverage is going to go because of availability in the theaters and, and recording schedules. We're either going to do a short preview and then a follow-up review at, once it's out, or we'll do it combined depending on how how quickly we can get to it. I, the Part of the issue for me is in my local theater. I don't know if we're going to get it on that first weekend. Sometimes mm. we get movies a little delayed, so we'll see. All right. Well, we'll keep you posted on anything else we might cover. We have a few things on the consideration block yes. for now, David, can you give a big thank you to our Patreon lore masters? I would love to, I would love to say thank you to Samartian, Mark H, Michael G, Michelle E, David W, Brian P, Nick W, SC, Peter OH, Bettina W, Adam S, Nancy M, Doove 71, Brian 8063, Frederick H, Sarah L, Gareth C, Eric F, Matthew M, Sarah M, DJ Miwa, Andra B, Kwong Yu, Deadeye Jedi Bob, Nathan T, Alex V, Aaron T, Sub-Zero, Aaron K, Dally V21, Gnarls, and the last, who shall be first, one. Adrian. <laughs> thank you all gnarls. so very much. Good old yeah. Gnarls. Uh, thank you all so very much for all your support. Uh, it keeps us moving and uh, keeps the whole... Yeah, just it keeps it keeps the it keeps um, the Death Star building. There you go. I was flailing for a metaphor. That's all mind. right. That's all right, David. We had a great conversation. We learned so much that our brains aren't working anymore. So That's may right. I just say, <laughs> let the force be with you, and also with you. The Lorehounds podcast is produced and published by the Lorehounds. You can send questions and feedback and voicemails at thelorehounds.com/contact. Get early and ad-free access to all Lorehounds podcasts at patreon.com slash the Lorehounds. And connect with us on Twitter at the Lorehounds. Any opinions stated are ours personally and do not reflect the opinion of or belong to any employers or other entities. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.